0: Now, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, a little bit of a departure from where we have been. We've been working our way through the Minor Prophets through this last year. Uh, We are going to finish that series early in the new year. I tried my very best to do 12 books in 12 months, and I got close-ish, depending on how you mark closeness. Um, But, you know, we gave it a great try, but we will finish up Zechariah, and uh, then we have one more book to go, and then we'll close off that series in January. Uh, But when we were in Zechariah last time, it was providential. We were in Zechariah chapter 7 and 8, which talk about giving acceptable gifts. We're in a season of gift giving, but what does it look like to give an acceptable gift? And on an eternally more significant scale, what does it look like to offer God a gift that he will accept? To give to God acceptable worship, to offer to God acceptable sacrifice. And while God has always told his people how he is to be approached, it has never just been about the cold external doing religion. It's always been a matter of the heart. From beginning to end, the approach to God begins in the heart. And so as we come into the time of Christmas, as we come into a season of tradition and wonderful tradition, encouraging tradition, uh, much of it so helpful and so holy as far as tradition goes, but it's a great time for us to consider the heart behind our traditions. Why do we do what we do? Is it for us to make us feel better, to make us feel warm and fuzzy? Is it uh, for the sake of simply tradition because it's what we've always done? Or do we do things, even those good things, in honor to God and in obedience and worship to Him? And today I want to consider not just how to give acceptable gifts, but today I want to consider the greatest gift ever given. And I know that we would get the answer right if I were to ask you what that is. If I were to ask all the kids, I don't know, age 6, grade and below. So if you're a child in here, because I know we took away Sunday school for this morning. So if you're a kid in this service, sixth grade and below, what do you think the greatest gift ever given was? You can talk out loud in church right now. It's okay. Jesus. Somebody, many of them said Jesus. Great job. You guys got it exactly right. Gold star for today. Make sure your parents, we're not going to promise you anything from the parents. (laughs) I would get emails, it wouldn't be good, not a Merry Christmas. Great job, kids. The greatest gift ever given is Jesus, and sometimes we get so deep into the cultural knowledge, even the Christian cultural knowledge, that Jesus is the greatest gift that we don't ever consider the actual value of that gift. What was the value of the gift of Christ? What does it mean that Christ is the greatest gift? What was the cost of that greatest gift? That's what I want to consider today. Even through a familiar passage, as we go to Philippians 2, I want to read that together now. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, this is what Paul writes, and this is what God says. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach Christmas, we ask that you would help us to think rightly about it, that our times of joy and celebration would be driven by the precious truth of the gospel, who Christ is and what he has done on our behalf. Lord, I pray that as we open your word to familiar words and maybe even familiar concepts, that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from that word, that you would help us to either see for the first time or see with a fresh understanding a fresh perspective a fresh awe and wonder the glory of the incarnation of christ that the eternal took on flesh for the good of his people lord as we consider those things help us to be obedient help us to live in light of what we know to be true help our lives to be lived as acts of worship When we do praise you, we thank you, we ask for your help, because we know that we need it in all things. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So when we were growing up, the most generous person I knew was my grandfather. It was Papa. And uh, Papa was very much a regular guy. He wasn't rich by any means. Uh, He owned a small business that always was a very small business. He retired and sold the business. Never had a lot but what he had, he took great delight in giving to people, in particular his grandchildren, which was a delight to us, of course. And uh, it meant that we always had what we needed. Uh, we always had the shoes that we needed. And I remember vividly at Christmas time uh, that he would take us into his travel trailer and just show us a peek, and it would just be full of the gifts that he'd gotten for his grandchildren. And of course, that stirs up all the childhood juices of anticipation. Uh, but in so many ways, uh, my idea of what generosity looks like is attached to the that man and what giving looked like for him. And it was a really precious thing to see what it looked like to love people and to give of yourself to them. Uh, Of course, as a child, much of that was lost on me, but my mom had a very particular way of asking a question that I wouldn't really understand until years later, but it was meant to kind of ground us in what those gifts cost on more than a money scale. And she would always say, do you know how many hours your grandpa had to work to get that? And again, of course I had no idea, it didn't matter to me, but it was a way of saying more than just, do you know the price tag associated with that? She was helping us understand, do you know that that costs something of himself to give to you? His time, his effort, his energy, not just his money. Do you know how much of himself he had to give to put that gift in your hand? And of course as the years move by you understand that mostly because you have to begin to work to earn the money to give the gifts Uh, but it was a really helpful thing to try and put into perspective the idea that to give a gift costs more than the dollar sign associated with it and sometimes we come to this season of gifts and giving and we rightly focus on christ and we rightly focus on what that gift has accomplished in us the idea that through the work of christ through the ministry the life the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we gain eternal life. We are reconciled to God. We have an eternal and everlasting hope. And those are blessed things. Those are wonderful things. They are worth singing about. They are worth lighting candles about. Uh, All of those are marvelously true. Uh, But for today, what I want us to consider is the greatness of the gift of who Christ is. Simply to stop for a moment and again to come to a familiar passage that simply reminds us of the glory of Christ. And that glory that we're going to see in Philippians chapter 2 is demonstrated in His humility. The glory of Christ veiled in humility. And then we're going to look at the honor and the exaltation of Christ as we go through there. So... If you're not there already, find your way to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 5. And before we can redo that, we kind of have to understand where we are. It's tough to jump into the middle of a book, in the middle of a passage. It's why we go through books consistently and from beginning to end. But let's establish some context here. Uh, Paul is the author of this letter to the Philippians. And he writes from prison. And you would think that a prison letter would not be the most exciting letter to get, and yet Paul loves this church, and Paul is so convinced of who God is and his power and his sovereignty over every situation that this is one of the most joyful letters that we have in the entire Bible. And it is not joyful because Paul knows his release date. He anticipates that he will likely be released, but it is joyful because Paul knows the God behind his circumstances. And so Paul is free to say that whatever happens— Whether he loses his life for the sake of the gospel or whether he is released and continues ministry, it is not only good, it is the best. Can you imagine going through your life, understanding God so well that you are convinced and convicted that whatever happens is the best possible outcome out of every possible outcome? That's what Paul was saying. That's what drives the joy behind this letter. If he dies, he is immediately in the presence of Christ. What more glorious thing could there be? If he lives... He is free to continue doing fruitful ministry among God's people and spreading the gospel. What more glorious thing could there be? And so Paul comes to this letter and these people with an uncertain future, but an absolutely certain understanding of who God is. And he begins this chapter, chapter 2, with this appeal to unity. He calls on them uh, to be of one mind. It's not a unity based on common background or common history or even common practice and things. It's unity based on a changed heart and a changed mind. And so he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Because of your common history, because of your common salvation, live like one people. And he says that'll cost you something. It will cost you your pride. You'll have to lay that down. Pride is the enemy of unity. And he says, lay that aside, and in humility, love one another. And so far, that doesn't sound particularly Christmassy, but then the example that he draws drives us right back to the narrative that we celebrate every time this time of year. Because the humility of Christ is what kind of then forms his illustration for what their humility from one another ought to look like. He talks about the humility of Christ, and he does that by pointing to a specific consideration, a specific thing thinking that was present in the mind of Christ, a specific kind of evaluation and a cost that Jesus uh, considered. Look at what he says in verse 6. This is the consideration. Jesus Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, See, if we're going to understand the value of the greatest gift, if we're going to talk about Jesus as the greatest gift, then we had better understand the nature of that gift. Who is this gift that we're talking about? It says that Jesus Christ existed in the form of God. The story of Jesus Christ does not begin in a manger in Bethlehem. It does not begin with an angel's proclamation to Mary that she will conceive and bear a son. The story of Jesus begins in eternity past, and we read that at the start of the service. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Not only was he in the beginning, not only was he with God, but he was God. Not a God, not God-like, but he was divine himself. The author of Hebrews kind of picks that up, and he opens his book with this wonderful statement in Hebrews chapter 1 about what Jesus is like He says that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, that is Jesus Christ, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Uh, to know jesus is to know that he is more than a man that he is more than a prophet that he is more than a miracle worker that he is more than an angel that he is god very god and this right here is where the cults even the christian sounding ones get it wrong we want to get down all the rabbit trails about the distinctions and how we argue these things Uh, bring it back to the truth of who is jesus christ who do you say that christ is To know Jesus, to know the Jesus of the Bible, is to know that he is unmistakably, unquestionably divine. Everybody wants to make Jesus maybe a little higher than a man, but never quite equal with God. Scripture does not allow for anything other than an understanding of Jesus Christ, God, very God. It's the one, it's Jesus, who is the one who formed and filled the earth. It's Jesus who's the one who upholds or sustains it, not only who spoke the world into formation, not only who spoke creation into existence, but who keeps everything spinning as it should be. This kind of exalted power and majesty that we can't even really get our minds around, but to know Jesus is to know that he is God and that he always has been God from the very beginning, that by the very nature of who he is, he is God but to know the work of Christ is to know that he didn't consider that equality with God something to be grasped at, and that's what Paul says. Although he existed in the very form of God, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped at, something to be clung to, something to be held on to at all costs, and we all know what that person is like, the person who sees a little bit of power and holds on to it with a death grip, terrified to let it go. We're coming up on an election year and all the terror that that brings with it. That is what it looks like to grasp tightly power for fear of losing it, to devote your entire life and career to gaining and maintaining some kind of power or stature in the eyes of other people. Jesus was not fearful of losing what rightly belonged to him. He didn't have to try and push himself up to a position of equality with God. He already was. He didn't have to try to grasp hold of it for fear of losing it. by his very nature. He could not be less than he was. And yet, although he existed in the very form of that, uh, in the very form of God, He willingly laid that glory aside, and that's where we look at the cost. Not only that consideration, not only that evaluation where he didn't have to desperately cling to it, but look at the cost of what he's done. Verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Christ willingly laid aside that glory that was his by nature, and he took on the limits that are inherent in our humanity the one who was the definition of brilliant, radiant glory would have that glory veiled in flesh. The one who knew all things, according to Luke, would learn and grow in wisdom and stature. The one who provided for the creation that he had made would be cared for by a mother and father. And that is almost incomprehensible to us. We think about humility in a particular way, and we think about ways that we can be more humble. Maybe it's the way that we dress or the car that we drive that doesn't reflect uh, the means that we have. Maybe it's in the way that we talk or treat other people, trying not to make ourselves seem better. Maybe it's acts of service where we, where we do things for the good of others, and those are all examples of humility, and they're all good examples of humility. Uh, but that's kind of our limited conception of what humility is. And I don't think we rightly understand the humility that it would have taken to step down from the glory that Christ experienced every day from the beginning of creation for all eternity past, enthroned in the praises and the glory of angels being equal, divine, God, very God, and yet taking on flesh. It's a bigger step down than we can even comprehend, that we can even conceive of. We think of Christmas and there's angels and shepherds and a manger, and it is a scene of humility. And it is a scene that we kind of associate with maybe tranquility and peace and quietness and certainly less than he deserved. But we don't always get across, I think, in our minds the idea that it is incomprehensible that God would be found here. That the God of all glory should come among us like this. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, not only was Christ subjected to the limits of humanity, he was subjected to the worst of humanity. It wasn't just that God, very God, would know what it was like to be tired he would, but he would know hunger. We, we read that when he was fasting and when he was driven out into the wilderness and when he was tempted by Satan. He would know rejection from the crowds who followed him but who always wanted the show or the free meal. But when it came time to lay down their lives and come after him, they largely abandoned him. He would know betrayal from his closest friends. You would know death, and not only death, but death on a cross. The most public, humiliating, cruel death that the Roman world could conceive of. Why? Why would God do that? Well, because God is holy, and because He says the wages, the cost, the price of sin is death because from the very beginning sin separates and sin kills and it always has and it always does and yet Jesus Christ the only one with no sin on his account willingly went to death a horrific death for his people he took on flesh so that he might take on the death that rightly belonged to us the Old Testament law gave the formula it gave the pattern for it it said that sin killed but god in his grace said something could die in your place that for a time He allowed an animal, a bull, a goat, a lamb to stand in your place, and their blood would temporarily cover over your sin and restore that right relationship between you and God. But that system always demanded more. There was always another sacrifice, always another offering, always another feast, always another festival, always this anticipation that it had to be done again and again and again. And it all pointed forward to the need for something greater, something final, something lasting And Jesus Christ was that final and lasting sacrifice. He was the perfect sacrifice. And that humility that led him to be the perfect sacrifice also means that he is the perfect high priest. See, you and I aren't fit to approach a holy God because we're stained, we're dirty. Sin has infected and contaminated us we need a go between we need a mediator between us and god humanity instinctively knows that every culture creates their bridge to god their holy people their learned people their priestly caste that does that work and yet god has supplied us with the perfect mediator the perfect go between jesus christ his son but he's not this far off a uh, separated distinct god who doesn't know what it's like to struggle The uh, same author of hebrews in hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says since the children share in flesh and blood he likewise also partook of the same so that through his death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives for assuredly he does not give help to angels but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able also to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Here's what he's saying. That you don't have a high priest, you don't have a mediator, you don't have a go-between who has some kind of arm's length sympathy for you we have a high priest who understands what it is to suffer as we do we have someone who goes before god on our behalf who knows what it is to be tempted who knows what it is to be tried see christmas is not just the celebration of a baby born although it is that it's not just the celebration of the birth of a great man it is certainly more than that christmas is a time of celebration that god very god took on flesh So that he might sympathize with our weakness. So that he might be not only the perfect sacrifice, but the merciful and faithful high priest. See, maybe you come into this season with more pain than I can even imagine. Physical pain, or maybe worse, emotional turmoil, spiritual distress, That darkness of despair that feels so close and pressing that you have to force the words to the carols out of your mouth. This is why Christmas matters. You don't serve a God who says, boy, that must be tough. We come before a God who was made like us so that he might be a merciful and sympathetic high priest. Fit to be our substitute, our perfect substitute but one who loves us in a way that is close and intimate and relates to our struggle in a way that I think we take for granted sometimes. And that is a worthy way to consider the Christmas story. We cannot rightly celebrate Christmas without considering the humility of Christ. But Paul doesn't end there, and so neither will we. Because while we're drawn to worship in the humility of Jesus, we're also called to worship in the glory of Christ because the humility was not the end of the story. As we look next, we're gonna see the exalted Christ. Look at verse nine. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Jesus Christ now bears the highest name. Just like the birth of Christ wasn't the beginning, the death of Christ wasn't the end. He's raised again, he ascends to heaven to the right hand of the Father, uh, where he now, Hebrews says, ever lives to plead, to make intercession for his people. We have this great high priest who is exalted to the highest place, who now dwells in the presence of the Father and pleads the case of his people. Only when Jesus intercedes for us, he does not plead our own goodness. He does not go before the Father and say, you should really let Matt off the hook. He's a pretty good guy. No, now he pleads my case based on his righteousness. And that is so important because sin still separates and sin still kills and I still sin. And so daily I need that mediatory work of Christ, that go-between work of Christ, that work of Christ that continues to plead my case as the perfect advocate before the Father. See, we know what lawyers are like and we make jokes at their expense, but lawyers got to make a living and they bill you by the hour and they are far from perfect and when they are not on your case, they are not on the case at all. We've got an advocate who never lays down our case. We have a perfect high priest who doesn't have to take a nap, doesn't have to take a break, doesn't have to go and do research. We have this mediator, this go between, who is the perfect representation for us, not because we demand or deserve perfect representation, but because he takes his goodness, his righteousness, his perfection, and he places it on us. And so he stands before the father and he says, this one is mine and all of his sin and guilt ought to be pardoned, not because he deserves it, but because I have paid for it. That is the glory of the mediatory work of Jesus Christ. What we celebrate at Christmas is the fact that that was not a temporary story for a time long ago and far away, but that that is an ongoing ministry that Christ has as he intercedes for his people. We worship a God who doesn't ignore sin, but in his holiness deals with sin, but in his mercy was pleased to pour out his wrath on his own son. And so God is just and sinners are justified. Jesus has this name that is the highest name. Names are so important. Most of us thought long and hard about what we named our children. Most people. When we thought about naming our daughters, we gave them names that were attributes that we prayed for. We gave them first names that kind of middle names that played off their first names because we thought about it. And it was fun and it sounded okay, and we hope they wouldn't get made fun of. Jesus Christ bears a name that is higher than any other name. And it's not just the idea of being named Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. There were people named Jesus before. There were people named Jesus after. But none of them bore the title of Christ. None of them could rightly be called the Messiah. We know other names that Jesus bears, that he's the Son of God, that he's the servant, that he's the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, that he's the Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But if you look at the very end of what Paul says in that verse, verse 11, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, it gives us a depth of understanding that not only does he bear the highest name, but he bears the highest authority. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, there's a time coming when Christ will return and Christmas reminds us of that. And that when he returns, he does not come back as a baby. He does not return in humility. He returns in glory, a conquering king in his majesty when he destroys his enemies. When he dispenses justice, when he restores his people, when he rules the creation that he made. What have we been going through in the Minor Prophets if not that precious promise? That the work of Christ is not done. Over and over, we're drawn back to this idea of the day of the Lord, this time coming when the Lord returns, when he shatters the nations with his authority, when he puts down every hint of human rebellion when he deals with the sins of his people, Israel, when he ultimately removes it from them, when his people return to him with hearts that are broken and finally repentant, when the nations themselves come and bow before the king of kings longing to be instructed with the word and the law of the Lord. See, that's what Paul's talking about. There's a time coming when the rule of Christ uh, will be without equal and without question. Right now, people can ignore Jesus. Right now, they can mock Him. Right now, they can scorn Him. But there's a time coming when every knee must bow and every tongue will confess. And it's not just the tongues of men and women And those living in creation, it's every tongue in heaven and hell, every man, woman, and child ever born, every created being, every angel, every principality, every power, every authority will one day bow before the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ, and it is with one voice they will say that you alone are Lord. Some will bow in humble submission, in joyful submission to their Savior. Some will bow as conquered and defeated enemies. But everyone must come to the same conclusion that this Christ is the ultimate sovereign over all creation. That's the ultimate outcome of the greatest gift that we celebrate at Christmas. We sing about peace and rightly so. We pray for peace, and rightly so. We work for peace, and rightly so. We are called to be peacemakers. And even as we do those things in obedience to Christ, we look forward and we long for the time when we know that true peace will only come when the king rules on his throne. when the stain and the ruin of sin is finally wiped out of creation and done away with, when even his conquered enemies have no choice but to recognize his sovereign power, And that reality gives Paul hope. Because if that Christ did that for him and will one day subdue the whole earth, how fearsome could a Roman prison cell be? If that God stooped that low to save him and he has that kind of power to provide an eternal home for him, then what could Caesar do? See, that's why it matters to us to understand the nature of the gift that we celebrate at Christmas because you and I need that same hope because our circumstances are no less pressing. Sometimes they're no less painful and no less terrifying. But the reality is that we have hope in every circumstance because we don't worship a far-off, far-away, arm's-length deity. We worship the God who is and who knows and who is with us. A God who's not shocked and dismayed by the state of the world. Who isn't scrambling to put pieces together that he had no idea would turn out like this. We worship the God who stepped into his broken creation to remind us that he has a plan to restore the brokenness of that creation. Christmas is a wonderful time to celebrate, to remember, to reflect on the Idea that God, Emmanuel, is God with us. Christmas is a wonderful time to look forward to what that God will do when he returns. And this week I want us to reflect as we close what does it look like to give in light of that greatest gift? Knowing what God has given, what does it look like for us to respond to that? And I don't mean pulling out checkbooks and giving in light of that, I don't mean uh, physical gifts, I don't mean charitable contributions or to the church even Uh, physical gifts might be expensive but in many ways physical gifts are easy i'm talking about gifts that cost significantly more than that how do you respond we talk about the christmas story and do we actually understand that it is more than a story This is not a narrative that we weave together once a year uh, to make us feel in a holiday mood, to make us feel festive, to make us feel uh, warm inside, to kind of drive a particular celebration. This is human history. This is a pivotal event in human history. And not only that, this is history that demands a response from us. That you can't come to the story of Christmas and just say, yes, I like it. No, I don't like it. You you come to the story of Christmas, to the God of eternity taking on flesh, living and dying for his people, being raised again to intercede on their behalf, the idea that he will come again to rule and reign over his creation. That narrative, that truth demands a response from us. Do you... No, jesus and i'm not talking about do you know about jesus could you tell me the facts about his birth maybe even his death and resurrection i'm talking about do you actually know the jesus of the recorded history in christmas or more importantly we could ask does he know you that's the pointed question that christmas demands perhaps this is the year where this story becomes more than a story Maybe this is the year when you recognize the cost, the reality, the rebellion of your sin. And when you finally come before God with nothing. No pride that says, here I am, you're lucky to have me. No self-improvement plan that says, I know I'm not great, but these are my steps to get better so that I'm worth it. Maybe this is a year that you recognize that His humility demands your humility, that you come with an empty hand and your only hope being that He does what we can't. That He removes the dead, sin-hardened hearts that we have had since birth and replaces them with a heart of flesh. That He removes the old, dead man that we continue to walk in and makes us a new man Obedient. Humble. Maybe this is the year when you recognize not only that Jesus is the greatest gift, but why you so desperately need that gift. Because that gift, although in some senses costs you nothing, will cost you everything. Your identity, given up and now found In him your agenda your priorities given up and now found in him your life no longer your own now hidden with Christ that's a high cost but isn't eternity worth it when this breath this vapor this blip of a life is over and we move into an eternity that is infinitely not only longer, but more unimaginably glorious than we could even dare to hope. See, and that reality is the only right way to consider Christmas. So how do we respond? Three quick things here. First, responding to one another. Remember, this whole passage started with humility. And here's the question. If Christ gave himself for us, Are we able to withhold ourselves from one another? If the God of eternity would step down and take on flesh, is there a step too great for us to take down for the good of others? And that's not a real popular way to think, because it means that you could very well get walked on and taken advantage of and used. It means that you might never get your due, that you might never be seen, that you might never see what you deserve in that job, in that school, in that classroom, in that relationship. You might never get what is actually yours. And that is unimaginable to some, or at the very least, un-American to most. Good. Because Christ shows us a better way a way that's not defined by cultural norms, a way that's not defined by my inward pride and desire to be seen or responded to in a certain way. But you and I are made free to love others in the way that Christ loved us. Second, we are a people who are able to respond to both power and humility found in Jesus Christ. Maybe you are coming here again with more despair than I can even imagine, bearing a weight that I have no conception of. Know that God does, that God is not standing far off wondering why you're such a mess, but that God is so deeply involved in the broken pieces of your life that he sees every jagged edge and how to put it back together. Maybe not in the way we would hope, maybe not in the way we could imagine, maybe not even in a way that we can conceive of. But the greatness and the glory of God is evident not only in His humility, but His power. And so as those two things work together, we recognize that we can come to God in our brokenness and know that He knows that we have a Savior who is tempted as we are. And so we come in our brokenness, in our pain, and we don't come to a Jesus who says, that must be rough. We come to a Jesus who knows pain and hunger and brokenness and betrayal and murder And he promises never to leave us, and never to forsake us. And he promises to work all of those broken pieces together for good, not for comfort, but for the ultimate good of being made more like him. The most precious thing that we could ever lay hold of, to be made like Christ. And so we respond to a God of unimaginable humility as he is made like us, but unthinkable power as he orchestrates every atom in his creation for his glory and for the good of his people. And that brings us to our final ability, and that is that we can respond with hope. Understanding the greatest gift, knowing who Jesus is, gives a real hope, not hope that things will get better, that you will feel better, that your body will heal, that the relationship will heal. We hope and we pray for those things. And God is able, more than able, to do those things. But we talk about, in this church and in the true church, a real hope that lasts far beyond anything temporarily associated with this world. We talk about a real hope that speaks in the middle of that brokenness to a God who is working, Uh, to an Advent, a Christmas story that doesn't just look back at the humility that was, but that looks forward to an Advent that is yet to come, a King that is coming again. Who will restore his creation, who will rule over his people and all nations, who promises us through his blood, through his death, and through his life an eternal inheritance, a living hope. That is the reality of the greatest gift of Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, we love gifts. We love to see generous people. There's something that warms our heart about seeing sacrifice for the good of others. God, this Christmas, drive our eyes to the work of Jesus Christ. To the infinite, eternal one who took on flesh and became like us. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A cross that should have been mine, that should have been ours. A shame and a humility that should have belonged to your creation, but instead was taken on by the Creator. And by your stripes we were healed. And Lord, in your humility, you've taken on a name that is above every name. And we look forward to the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But Lord, until that day comes, help us to be a people of humble hope, of joyful submission, of willing sacrifice, for the good of others, and out of obedience to you. You are worthy of all of our praise, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.